raise up missionaries that are convinced that uh, you have some that you have called by name. And Lord, that you would give wisdom to Bible translators and missionary teams as they work in the country of Mali. Father, would you raise up workers for the harvest, we pray, and redeem some. And may we have the privilege of hearing of your work in these places, Lord, as we pray. Father, we lift up all the troubled spots in our world. We know there is suffering in many places from uh, uh, various places in West Africa to those suffering in Sudan under persecution and poverty. Lord, we lift up the war-torn areas like Ukraine and uh, Israel and Gaza. Lord, that we know that there's believers on both sides of every one of these conflicts that are politically happening, but that you in your sovereign plan are working these things together for your desired ends. But you are saving people in the midst of it. You are drawing people to a soberness of spirit that this world is not our home and that death is so near for all of us. And so help that to sober us as well. Lord, we pray that we would humble ourselves, that it's only by your grace that we are not entrenched in conflict or on our own soil. And so would you uh, show your grace and humble us afresh uh, this season. Father, we lift up the military who are certainly missing home this time of the year. Would you be with them? Would you comfort them? We thank you for uh, the military chaplains through RBNet that we support that are going to various places. We lift up these um, uh, chaplains that were able to go to Japan, Lord, uh, this last week and minister to the families after the Osprey uh, plane crash, Lord, and Lord, that would you do work that only you can do in not only bringing comfort, but bringing to salvation to many uh, that hear your gospel. Father, we pray for those that are grieving this time of the year. We think of uh, uh, my friends, the D'Amatos out in California, Kim and the kids as they grieve the loss of Ryan. Lord, we pray for uh, the Prevet family, um, Eric and his siblings and, and Eric and, and Robin and Quinn and Leah and their families as they grieve the loss of Scott, their uncle, that uh, we thank you for his life well lived. Thank you for the great turnout to honor his life yesterday. We thank you for the joy of seeing a, another brother finish the race well and uh, cause us to look to you and think about our own races. So we, we lift these that are grieving to you. Father, we pray for our expectant mothers. We think of Whitney and Sarah Foster, Lord, that you would be with them as they uh, carry these babies in their womb, Lord, that you would care for them, that uh, there would be no complications in their pregnancies and, and safe deliveries, Lord, that you would bring these children to faith. Uh, Lord, we thank you for new life. What a joy it is uh, to see what you're doing in the lives of so many. Father, we pray that you would continue to bring healing to uh, those that are recovering from various illnesses. We do lift up Brandon this morning as he's not feeling well. Um, other families that are uh, just not, not feeling um, well enough to be with us this morning. We pray for George's brother, Buddy, and his wife, Linda, Lord, as um, he is continuing to uh, seek to gain strength, Lord, uh, for a bone marrow transplant, that you would give wisdom there, that you would give strength to his body, that you would show mercy upon him, and Lord, do a work that only you can do and bring healing to him. 
We continue to pray for uh, missionary John Cordy, Lord, out in Arizona as he battles esophageal cancer. Thank you for the effective treatments in his situation that have been surprising, the prayers of your people that have been answered. We lift up uh, Dean Mundy to you. We pray for him. We pray for Christina Grabiel as she's continuing to heal. Father, that you would show your grace. Father, we uh, pray that you would be with uh, Joe Morris, Lord, as he has surgery this week, that you would give the doctors wisdom, give him peace, Lord, and Lord, that this surgery would accomplish its intended purpose and that you would relieve our brother from pain and discomfort. Uh, Lord, heal him quickly. We pray for those traveling. We think of uh, Dot and Ken, Lord, who will not be with us for this next season as they travel to uh, live up in New Jersey for this uh, next few months, that you'd be with them. We pray for the Hendersons, Lord, as they uh, prepare to come back, Lord, from Central America. Lord, we pray for others that are traveling. We pray for our brother Nathan Seats, Lord, as he preaches out at Pine Mountain, Lord, that you would be with him this morning and uh, just give him great utterance, Lord, that you would meet with the brethren there and uh, bring great glory to your name. Father, we pray for Christ alone. Uh, we pray that you would continue to work in them and through them. We thank you for Pastor Tim. We pray that you would be with them this morning and comfort them, we pray. Lord, help us now as we turn to your word. Would you be glorified and exalted as we not just hear your word, but consider it and make application to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. One week away from Christmas. It's hard to believe how fast this year is coming to a close, uh, but hope that you are doing well. It is good to see your faces. Uh, would you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25? Genesis chapter 25. We will be looking at verses 1 through 18 this morning with God's help. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah and Ephur, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Memory, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, 
named in order of their birth. Nabioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Yatur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Genealogies are a huge part of the scriptures. We tend to think of the book of Numbers or here in Genesis where we see many of these genealogies. We see them throughout the Old Testament. We think of First Chronicles. But did you know that even the New Testament starts with a genealogy? In fact, if you will, in a sense, the book of the Bible in all of its order is put together with genealogical intent. There is a line that is like no other, that is brought to focus that, yes, while babies and the uh, continual posterity of the flesh of Abraham would continue, there is a sense that God is doing something not just in the flesh, but also in the spirit. We have had this anticipation from the early parts of Genesis when we know that by God's decree that man would fall, we know that in God's plan that uh, Adam and Eve would propagate the human race, and we know that God working in the midst of his uh, plan would ultimately bring this great promise to Abraham as we're studying. If you were to consider this chapter, it is a pivotal point in the center of the book of Genesis that is a transition in the line of the, the redemptive line of Christ. But it's also a triumph that is happening. As we have just left the, uh, really the climax of Abraham's life in past chapters with the presentation of Isaac as a sacrifice and God providing a substitutionary atonement up into the sorrow that came with the death of his wife and the preparation and the promise of this land will be inhabited and the echo of Hebrews 11 saying that these went to death even having not yet seen the full promise that God had given. And yet, under the undercurrent of all of this, is that there was a promised redeemer back in Genesis 3.15. Who will this promised son be? While Isaac was their promised son, he wasn't the promised son. And so we might look at this passage and say, what in the world does that have to do at Christmas? Pastor, just take a break. You're constantly just going verse by verse, thinking that we don't need a break. And we do at times. This is very much a Christmas passage. In fact, I could argue theology of Christmas, every passage is a Christmas passage. Christ is everywhere in the Old Testament. It's exciting to see 
non-traditional passages in this way in light of what we're celebrating this time of the year. There's babies all over this passage. You want to celebrate new life, it's right here. But this is pointing to a greater baby that would one day be born. And yes, he would not stay a baby. He was born to die. As we saw prophesied in previous chapters with Isaac. And so as we come to this passage, we might say, well, what, what are we going to do with this? This is simply a, a transition between Abraham and Isaac, which we'll see. But I, I didn't go on to read nine, verse 19 and following, although those are connected. There's, there's a place here that we need to camp for a moment and look at what God has accomplished and why, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the author Moses is connecting these dots in a very historical narrative that we need to pay attention to. And yes, genealogies are inspired texts of Scripture. And so it does us good to heed that and to listen and see what this text holds. So I'm going to move quickly through this. But really quickly, I want to look, first of all, at the genealogy of Abraham's uh, sons through Keturah. And we'll, make some, uh, we'll, we'll look at Keturah and how she connects to this ultimate plan. And then uh, the generosity, really, of Abraham in, verse in verses 5 and 6. And then uh, thirdly, we want to look at really how uh, uh, Abraham was gathered to his people. That same phrase is used of Ishmael later on in the text that uh, they were gathered to their people. And then, fourthly, we want to look at God's blessing of Isaac. That verse 11 is really the climax of this text, and it, it really takes your breath away in the context of all that's going on. And then, ultimately, the generations of Ishmael, and we will make some applications following that. So, right here in this text, notice that there's a... Um, uh, a, a turn of events. We saw that Isaac uh, received his bride, uh, Rebecca, in the last text that we really had looked at for multiple weeks. And we shouldn't ignore that because the story of how God answered and brought a bride to Isaac is repeated multiple times. It's not just in the prayers and expectations of Abraham and the servant, but then uh, as the servant experiences it and then as he relates it, to Rebekah's family, and then as he reports it to Isaac, that this is a thing of God. This is God's will, God's providence, God's decree in their lives. And so that's where we end, and we look here at this text now, and it seems that the flow of the text is still chronological, which we don't necessarily have a reason to doubt, but we have a few things to consider that are troublesome uh, as far as how we interpret uh, these first few verses. Look at how what it says in verse 1. It says, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. So in the flow of the text, it seems that Keturah was taken as a bride following Sarah's death. Now at this point, it's probably been three or four years since Sarah's death. When we connect these other passages, uh, the expectation, of course, after Sarah's death was, um, was Abraham himself facing his old age, in fact, we go back all the way to chapter 12. We have the, the flow of the text is talking about uh, Abraham and how decrepit he is and how old he is. And the emphasis being on that Isaac's birth was going to be a miraculous birth. And it was. And so he is a man of old age. But the text also tells us in verse 7 that he lived to 175 years. 
So there's a span of just about 50 years, give or take, that Abraham continues to live after these events of previous chapters. And so it's in this that our natural reading of the text would think that, again, Keturah was taken as a bride. Now, it, it, that may be the right uh, uh, case. But I want you to flip over to 1 Chronicles chapter 1. 1 Chronicles chapter 1. And we'll look down to uh, this genealogy and uh, see that we have a different word being used here that's instructive to us. Look down to, uh, again, 1 Chronicles, if you ever have a chance, uh, impeccable genealogy here from Adam all the way to uh, Abraham, let alone on to the uh, tribes that uh, existed at that time. There is a great human genealogy here that many have gone to uh, to really talk about uh, the genealogical proofs that take us back as an apologetic to the truths of Genesis. But with that said, look down to verse 32. Well, back up for context to verse 28. It says, The sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael, these are their genealogies. And he lists the firstborn Ishmael, and then Nebioth, and Kedar, Abadil, Misham, Mishua, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Yatur, Nafish, Kedemah, and these are the sons of Ishmael. So he mentions those first. Then verse 32, the sons of Keturah, Abraham's concubine. Now, we got to back up a little bit in the sense of notice that Abraham is mentioning or the, the um, sons of Abraham being Ishmael first. He's mentioning Ishmael's progeny and then Keturah's. So notice that flow here. The sons of Keturah, Abraham's concubine. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. I expect you to know all these by the end of the sermon. The sons of Jokshan, Sheba, and Dedan. The sons of Midian, Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. These are the descendants of Keturah. Now, notice, if you didn't notice, at the beginning of verse 32, what did it call Keturah? Abraham's concubine. Now, there's a difference between a wife and a concubine, but I think in the context of all that's going on in Genesis, I think we need to pay attention to this because certainly when it came to the son of promise, Isaac, Isaac is set apart. He is sanctified, if you will. He's set apart for God's particular fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Abraham realized that. Remember back at the earlier parts of Genesis when uh, Abraham himself said, Oh, let Ishmael be before you, O God. In other words, let him be the promised son, the, the son of Hagar. And God said, effectively, no. There's a difference between Hagar and Sarah. We talked about how, as humans, we often try to do God's will, man's way, and that's ultimately the result of Hagar. But in God's providence, he promised Hagar also that she would make uh, Ishmael into uh, 12 uh, nations, and we'll, we'll read that at the end of this text. But here in, in First Chronicles, the reason I brought you here is to see the difference of this word used here uh, for concubine than the word that's actually used in Genesis in Hebrew, uh, isha, which can be woman or uh, in particular situations, wife. So 
that, that seems to present an issue. Is, is, is Abraham, is this his concubine that he had all these children by? If so, how many concubines? Because we see that he sent the concubines away. Verse 6, is Keturah one of those? Or is that what it's speaking of? And why is Moses making a distinction here between Hagar, Keturah, and then others, the sons of these concubines? So all that to say is we don't have definitive proof here, but it does seem that in the flow of the context of Genesis that Keturah was taken as a wife, and yes, she bore him six sons, often in the flow of the text of scripture we see sons mentioned but we also know that daughters are mentioned in some places but even then sometimes daughters aren't mentioned at all even though they actually were born and the purpose of this in this genealogy is to show what is going on and the the culmination of what God has promised Abraham that he will be the father of many nations plural but that God is also doing something through the faith of Abraham and through the son and lineage, if you will, the redemptive line, if you will, through Abraham. In fact, we'll, make, we'll look at uh, Galatians again uh, towards the end, the reminder that God is working a work of faith through Abraham. It's not just the genealogy of Abraham. Jesus brings this out when he's speaking to the Pharisees in his ministry that it's not just sons of Abraham who are genealogically tied to Abraham, it's those who are of faith of Abraham. And and, uh, Paul makes this connection as far as that's concerned, let alone how the allegorical interpretation of Mount Sinai and, um, and the other mount as far as Hagar being a covenant uh, between Jew and Gentile. So what we look at here in this text is a really a connection and closure to what God has already promised. So real quickly, if we look at these names, uh, names, of course, have meanings in uh, the, well, every name has meaning, but uh, in the context of Scripture, it's, it's interesting how these names um, uh, speak to their lives and accomplishments and so forth. Uh, Zimran, for instance, means celebrated, jokeshan. Uh, was a fowler, so it might lead to what they did for a living. Uh, Midan uh, means judgment. Midian, who the Midianites would come from. Uh, It's important. Midian um, was where Moses fled to, if you remember, uh, in the later uh, latter uh, parts of of Exodus. And we see that um, Midian would ultimately be a thorn in Israel's side in the future. These are brothers, if you will. Uh, living in the same place, but Midian means strife or contention. And these, remember the Midianite traders were those who uh, took Joseph uh, away from his murderous brothers. And a a show of kindness that we'll look later in Genesis at. Ishbak uh, means free. Uh, These people can be traced back to uh, northern Arabia. Uh, Shua uh, means prosperity, that the, the people of Shua Um, are probably the same as the Shuites that are mentioned in uh, Job chapter 2. That, remember, one of Job's comforters in Job 2 was um, a a Shuhite, and uh, that these others were um, connected to that. But then uh, the text flows into verse 3 and actually speaks of the grandchildren in this part of the line to Abraham. 
He says, Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan uh, were Asherim, uh, Letushim, and Lumim. These are the sons, or the grandsons and great-grandsons of Abraham. And, and this is important to note that God is fulfilling his promised work in making of many nations through Abraham. Uh, you, you connect that to modern times, uh, I don't find it uh, anything other than irony to see that even the peace talks that supposedly uh, were happening just a few years ago, they called the Abraham Accords because genealogically, a lot of these Arab nations go back to this one man, Abraham. That there's a contention that has happened even starting in these days. Look at verse 4. The sons now, this is the sons of Midian. So he has separated out Jokshan and Midian um, with his uh, uh, five descendants. He says, Epha, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Elda. Uh, Epha means obscurity. Ephar was probably a, um, uh, a herdsman of some kind. His, his name actually can mean mule uh, or worker. Uh, Hanok means dedicated. Uh, and this ultimately was a family name because we see in Genesis 46, 9 that this is the name of the eldest son of Reuben, one of the 12 sons of Israel. Abida is, uh, really means um, uh, father of knowledge. And so there's a sense of growth of the, uh, the uh, perhaps academic pursuits of these early um, people. You know, we, for those of you who studied math, uh, I know that uh, school's about out, so I won't stay on math very long. But uh, that algebra and, and a lot of these roots have their uh, foundation in Arab nations. Uh, and then Elda uh, it means whom God called. And then the text says here, wrapping these, this uh, small genealogy of Keturah, that these are the children of Keturah. In other words, God in his, um, in his uh, inspiration of this text through Moses is writing down the family line of Keturah, and that's in complete um, opposite form from what uh, he's talked about, Hagar's, and then ultimately the other sons of concubines, and all in relation to what God is blessing, we'll see here, with Isaac. So that's Keturah. So regardless of whether we can come to the conclusion whether she was a concubine or a wife, either way, these lines have come through Abraham, and there's attention brought to Keturah and to Hagar in the opposite way of how God brought the promised son through his true wife, which was Sarah. So we see that here in the text. So we see that genealogy. We're seeing that tide. We'll look at Ishmael's in a minute. But let's look at how God is working in Abraham's latter days as far as his generosity was concerned. Abraham, uh, seeking wisdom, obviously is thinking about the next generation. We saw that in his concern for Isaac and a bride. And so we see the greatness of God in leading here that he would solve these things while he's yet alive. There's a sense that we are called to put our houses in order. Jesus himself put his house in order before he died. He asked John to from the cross to care for his mother. And he set uh, all things in order before his death. And we see this very similarly in Abraham's life here. But notice what it says. He said he gave um, 
Abraham, verse 5, gave all he had to Isaac. In other words, all that's going on, all the children that are around, all the extended family from all that Abraham is as a huge tribe himself, he gave everything he had to Isaac. Isaac becomes the sole focus of this text, that he is giving everything he has and an inheritance to Isaac. And then in contrast to that, there's a second thing. He says, but to the sons of his concubines, which is again that same word that we saw in 1 Corinthians, I mean 1 Chronicles rather, um, is that, that these concubines that Abraham gives gifts to them while he was still living, and he sends them away from his son Isaac to eastward to the east country. Now this word sent away is the same word used earlier as he sent Hagar away. Remember the conflict between Sarah and Hagar? And Paul, again, is talking about these as two nations, if you will. And he has sent her away. She is not to be confused with the promise given to Isaac. Same thing here. Years later, the family has grown, and Abraham makes a distinction. There's Isaac, and then there's everyone else. You can imagine how hurtful that could be in a family. If you've never seen a family fight after a funeral... Um, it won't be long until you're part of one. Uh, but there's things that happen at the end of life that cause such distress on our human souls. But Abraham notices handling these things while he's yet alive. There's wisdom there to make known what is his will. But also superseding all of that is God's providential working in this situation. He has brought all things to bring the spotlight, humanly speaking, onto Isaac and Rebekah. This is the climax of the last chapter and on into the next that God is going to continue his line. So he's brought all these things. He's sent these people off. You see Abraham's generosity. He doesn't kick them out without kindness. He sends them away with great gifts. If you haven't caught this in the text of Genesis yet, Abraham is a wealthy man. He's wealthy. And sometimes we get this picture of Abraham just living in a tent, which he probably did, but it was a nice tent. And he had a lot of camels, donkeys, sheep, herds, servants, both male and female servants. We saw in the last passage camels beyond compare to people around him. Even the surrounding nations recognized Abraham himself as a great man, a prince, if you will. And they even connected him to Yahweh, calling him a prince of God. He's a well-respected, very rich man. So we see his generosity here. Now look at verse 7. Thirdly, really, the gathering or the death of Abraham being gathered to his people. Look at, look at verse 7. It says this. It says, These are the days of Abraham's life, 175 years. Now it's interesting to note that it's been 100 years exactly since Abraham came to what would be ultimately the promised land. 100 years he had invested his life there and all that God had done. But his life is represented in verse 7 by the author Moses under the inspiration of the Spirit that these are the years of Abraham's life. You see, while Abraham came on the scene and God blessed him, it was the connection of Abraham's life to many lives that would come after this that God is bringing attention to. Abraham himself 
is not the promised one. Abraham himself is yet one that has received God's blessing and great kindness and great grace, but it points to a greater truth. It points to one yet to come. And Abraham's life, while it was well-lived, it ended after 175 years. Verse 8, Abraham breathed his last and died. This is a great apologetic that 175 years, which seems impossible in our common era, shows that it was truly speaking of Abraham, not Abraham's tribe. There's many who are looking at, re-looking at the text of Genesis, seeking to undermine its truth, let alone its historicity, by suggesting that these are uh, years that uh, a tribe or a family lived and not actual years, and I think that's dangerous because we get into all kinds of interpretational errors if we do so. But here in verse 8, we know it's speaking of Abraham himself, that Abraham breathed his last and died. Notice it says, in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. As we have said before, God, God tells you when you're old, and 175 is old. We can all agree that from the text that he lived a full life. But notice here that something interesting happens in verse 9. As he is gathered to his people, both his sons show up. Ishmael, who has been out of the narrative for some time now, is back for his father's funeral. Isn't it interesting here that we see that it speaks of Abraham being gathered to his people and later we'll see the same phrase used of Ishmael that God is working in this but God ultimately is bringing people to their his desired ends. People of faith but also those who would be of uh, outside of the promise if you will that are gathered to their people. So this euphemism speaking of death is important. And so in the context of this, Isaac and Ishmael, notice his sons, what do they do? They bury him. And where do they bury him? They bury him at the cave of Machpelah. Remember, this is where Abraham went and purchased a piece of property to bury Sarah in. Literally, he was buying a piece of property from the Hittites, knowing that God ultimately was going to give his future posterity this land. He's actually buying land that was promised to him. And for the purpose of burial. By faith, purchases the land, and it mentions their names. It was the field of Ephron, the Zohar, the Hittite, that we saw in previous text, east of Mamre. Remember, he goes to the city and buys this plot, and then onward that it's to the field exactly that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. And there it was that Ishmael and Isaac have this somewhat of a reconciliation in their duty as sons to bury their father. And that should instruct us in many ways. First of all, while Ishmael and his mother had been sent out many years before, there's a sense of honor and respect that Abraham still had in Isaac's eyes that he would show up and bury his father and do what a son ought to do. And so he uh, is there and they buried Abraham next to Sarah, his wife. There's this sense that there's closure to this generation. And God is doing something new, as we'll see, that picks up in the next uh, passage, starting in verse 19, that God is going to be working through 
Isaac, and Rebekah as far as this continual redemptive line. But notice here, verse 11 interrupts this flow of historical narrative where God shows up here in this text for the first time. And it says these words, After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. Notice this is after the death of Abraham. God blesses Isaac. Now, it's, it's huge here. Obviously, we know that God is working all these things uh, to pass, but there's a, a separation here. There's, a, there's a, a focus, if you will, on Isaac in juxtaposition to Ishmael and to uh, the rest of the family. That God himself is putting his seal of blessing upon Isaac. Turn back to Genesis 17. We'll see this by way of memory that this is actually prophesied to Abraham that this would take place. Genesis 17, down in verse 18. Genesis chapter 17, down to verse 18. This is after uh, Abraham falls in his faith, after the announcement that he would, uh, that Sarah would conceive um, Isaac. It says in verse 18, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And then look at this in verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. What's he saying? He's going to bless both lines. He's going to bless them abundantly. They're going to grow explosively. But notice the attention that he puts on Isaac. He says, I will make my covenant with Isaac. In other words, there's a difference here between covenant and blessing. There's a natural blessing that God is going to give the line of Ishmael and really that he gives to all mankind that we would call common grace that God gives to all mankind. He blesses that even unsaved people can see God's blessing in life, that he has given them life and health and many blessings. And yet there's a separation here between Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac is a son of promise. And we see this in the context of the gospel that God is raising up sons of glory by faith and yet he is working in a genealogical line as we see here in the text and other texts following Abraham's redemptive line. That God is going to use both for his purposes. So why do we see that? Well, in the text here in uh, chapter 25 that God is blessing Isaac. God's purposes are beyond just this generation. And so, we see God's blessing. And then finally here, as far as the flow of this text, it deals now with Ishmael. It's interesting that Ishmael is mentioned afterwards. It's, it's, dealing, it's another uh, example that Keturah probably was his wife because it's dealing with present tense. And then it works its way backward as far as uh, these genealogies back to Ishmael because we haven't heard from him 
uh, in several chapters. And so he, uh, Moses brings his closure here to the generations of Ishmael. Notice it says in verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in order of their birth. Now, this is important because notice there's 12 names here in verse 13 and verse 14. Exactly what we just read in chapter 17, that God had promised that 12 princes would come from Ishmael's line. And this is the fulfillment of that. Now, we don't know a lot about these men. You can study this, and there's mention of their descendants in other places in the Old Testament. Uh, But we know Nebaioth is the firstborn. His name means faithfulness. Kedar can mean uh, dusky or the skin of a tent, which uh, probably referred to uh, the starting of a Bedouin tribe of some kind, which still exists today. Uh, Isaiah 21, 17 speaks to this as the descendants of Kedar. Uh, Abdil uh, means disciplined by God. uh, Mibsam uh, means fragrant. Mishma means to, to hear. It's very interesting here in verse 14, Mishma, Duma, and Masa in Hebrew literally mean to hear, keep silence, and bear. It's, it's almost identical if you translate this to Greek, what James says in James 1.19, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Literally, Mishma, Duma, Masa, hear, keep silence, bear with one another. It's interesting. But we see this in verse 14, and then notice the last few names. Hadad means fierce. Uh, Tima uh, really can mean desert. Uh, probably the father of the Sabians that we see in uh, Job chapter 1 and in Job chapter 6. Uh, Job, uh, just by way of uh, acknowledgement, was probably a contemporary with Abraham as far as are living at the same time. Uh, Yatur means enclosed. Nafish means to be refreshed, and Kedemah, which means uh, precedence or original. Um, these 12 tribes became 12 nations. Arabians in that area of the world at that time grew out of the sons of Ishmael. And so in verse 16, um, Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. Again, the fulfillment of Genesis 17, verse 20 and 21, as God had said. So Moses, wanting us to understand that God has kept his promise to the sons of Abraham, is really the culmination or the conclusion that we're getting from this. But the eye is on what? Isaac. So in verse 17, it says, these are the years of Ishmael, 137 years. So categorically, Ishmael isn't dead in the sense of the flow of the text. He probably died uh, sometime around uh, the time uh, before Isaac died, but but it's bringing closure to Ishmael's life so that the flow of the text can now start looking at Isaac, the promised son. So he lived 137 years. It says he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled, settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria, and he settled over against all his kinsmen. This line is interesting, that they're in the same region. They're, they're getting their own separate inheritances, but they're still neighbors, if you will. 
there's this, you can feel the tension here, that they were sent out, they were blessed, yes, God himself blessed them, but they're still next door neighbors, regionally speaking. And what is God doing? He's bringing his blessing upon Isaac. Now, we've looked through this text, I've tried to walk through the, the historical narrative here. But what does that mean? What does that mean to us here almost at Christmas of 2023? Why, why is this important in the text? Why is it in the scriptures for us? What, are, what do we have to learn from this? Well, I think first of all, there's a very real sense of the humanity of Abraham here. There's a real sense that's coming off these pages of Scripture that we are not alone. We don't live our lives as islands, that we are related to other people, that God made us related beings to each other, that we're called to do life with other people, and that God is working providentially through those, as we saw in the last passage of God bringing all these circumstances to play and bringing Rebekah to Isaac. Let alone, Abraham's life was busy. You can imagine how he is dealing with his eight children over the course of all these years and the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, and all the busyness of all that he owns. At the same time, his eyes are completely focused on the one who is promised. And so, an encouragement that comes off the text here to us this morning is, do you ever feel busy? Do you ever feel that your life is complicated? Do you ever feel that God has given you much to manage? Well, don't feel alone. Abraham was one who was managing much. But in the context of this, he never lost focus on what was ahead. And he, like us, had to look to God to ultimately trust him in the circumstances he was in. Secondly, he was gathered to his people. His people being the, the truth resign or, uh, or that, that Christ would ultimately reign one day, that he was going to be named with his people. Remember, he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He was associated with the people that were looking to a better land, a better home, a better place. And we know that from Hebrews 11. And that's in exact opposite of those who would have their home in this world. And that would not be a part of the ultimate promise that was given to Abraham. And so they dwelt over and against their kinsmen in this way. In what ways are we walking through as pilgrims in this world? That we have, yes, fellow humans that are beside us, but we are of completely different futures. We have completely different gods in the sense of being reconciled to the living God as opposed to those really under the sway of the wicked one. That those that are being called to faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are destined for destruction. And yet, while we see the great promise of Galatians here, that these two covenants would ultimately mean that both Jew and Gentile could know Christ and would be drawn to him. And it wasn't just centered on the nation of Abraham, but ultimately God would use Abraham to bless all nations. There's a radical missionary sense of God working in the lives of mankind that should cause us to be in awe of who he is. 
that from these nations come uh, a good part of the known world even today. That God is out to save some from every tribe, tongue, and nations. That God is not playing favorites. He is, of course, bringing out his people who are the object of his love and compassion. Do you have a hope like that? Are you going to be gathered to those kinds of people when you die? Our hope, like Abraham's, was not just this worldly. Abraham had much to think about in his posterity and who to give these gifts to and what were they going to receive. But Abraham knew that God was going to bless Isaac and he trusted God with Isaac. And he gave him all that he had. He put all the chips in Isaac's court. Why? It wasn't just because Abraham knew that Isaac was yet the next step, but he was doing it out of worship and faith that God was able to fulfill his promises. It's not that Isaac was just the greatest son ever. It was that God had revealed to him that this is the way. Do you trust God in that way? Are all your chips on that side of the board? But lastly, and this is where we connect it to a great Christological uh, passage, that this triumph of this redemptive line begs our attention to the ultimate end. This line of redemption that God is drawing from Genesis and that he'll pull all the way through the scriptures, even to the book of Revelation that speaks that we're waiting for the lion of the tribe of Judah to come back in power, to come back and reveal all that he has accomplished in redemptive history, that God is not yet finished in redeeming the saints. He is not yet done, finished, calling some from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and that he has done this through his son, the one that we are celebrating this time of the year. Yes, the promised seed, the one born of the Virgin Mary, born in an obscure village like Bethlehem that would raise up to be the Christ that would suffer for our sake. God eternal in, in the eternity past became flesh and dwelt among us. That he lived a perfect life he died and he rose again. He ascended into heaven where he sits at God's right hand waiting for the day that God will send him back to get and collect his bride where we will ever be with the Lord. But the challenge comes to us really from where Paul mentions this in Galatians. A reminder, we were there recently in chapter 3 which puts it back in our court of are you trusting God like Abraham did? Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. It says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And this goes into the great text here, starting in verse 10, 
in Galatians 3 that says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by what? By faith. But the law is not, not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing, notice the connection here, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What about you? But Abraham's genealogy just got real personal. That you, here this morning, hearing this great redemptive truth of God's plan in redeeming mankind comes to this room. That those who are the blessing, the, the recipients of the blessing of Abraham comes to even us. That God is calling us to trust him by faith. That he is saying that we are to come before him and realize that he alone is all that we need. That he is our justification. He alone is our hope. He alone is our future resurrection. He alone is worthy of praise. He is calling you to repentance and faith. And Paul calls this the blessing of Abraham coming to even us. All of a sudden, Christmas gets real personal. We can talk about the historicity of the Christmas story. We can talk about the reality of Abraham's line all the way through the genealogies of Luke 1 and Matthew 1. We can consider all that God is doing in the Christmas story. We can even focus on angels and, and their great songs and great announcements in the Christmas story. We can even look at that babe in a manger and consider all that was going on on that great Christmas morn. But the great tragedy is that some of us don't look into the face of that child and realize that the the reality is that he is your only hope. He is your redeemer. He would grow to be a sacrifice for you. Do you believe that he did that for you? And where this comes into great awe is that God would show his grace and while we were yet sinners, would die for us. He was enough for Isaac. He was enough for Abraham. Is he your treasure this morning? I don't know about you, but one of the greatest gifts and only gifts that surpasses all other gifts is God himself. And to be in right relationship with him requires that we go his way. For there's only one way to the Father, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is only one way to truly come through Jesus Christ, and that is admitting that we are in desperate need, that we are sinners against his great throne, his holiness, as we started this service with in Isaiah 6, that we are traumatized by that holiness because we are not holy, but he is. 
and he died in our place that we could be reconciled to him, that as Peter says, we also could become partakers of his holiness. Would you join me this Christmas in worshiping this Christ who is worthy of all of our attention? He is worthy of every gift. In fact, as Paul says, the only right response to him is to be a living sacrifice unto him. What does Christ want this Christmas is you. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you. And we are humbled by this text in Genesis, the great connection that truly every text of Scripture is a Christmas text. Because every point of Scripture points to you, the Redeemer, the one who is worthy of all majesty and glory and dominion, the one who is greater than anything, the one who doesn't change, the one who is all self-sufficient, the one who needs nothing, the one who has no needs. You became flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, we're in awe of this amazing story. We're in awe of who you are. But we thank you for giving us the reminder this morning that we are to be of a disposition of humility and honor and worship to you. You are great. You are worthy to be praised. You are worthy to be sung to. You are worthy to have gifts lavished on you. There is no one like you. God, would you open our minds? Would you quicken our spirits and sober our, our souls this Christmas? that we, as we await our redemption, would be content in you, that we would be weaned off the temptations of this world because we are looking into the full face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is our treasure. He is the gift. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name.